Welcome to the Denver Waldorf School Podcast. This is our place to connect as an intentional Waldorf community, to share the stories, wisdom, and artistry of our students, our educators, and all those who make this community come alive. This is our journey together. This week, we are trying something new. It's a new school year. We have a new education director, many new families in our growing community. I'm Jen Lamboy, and I am not new, but I'm excited to have you with us on this podcast. If you are just getting to know the Denver Waldorf School, we are founded on Rudolf Steiner's humanitarian curriculum. We believe education should foster what it is to be human, cultivate lifelong curiosity, and inspire a love for the world. And you can learn more at denverwaldorf.org. So the format this week brings education director Vernon Dewey into the fold. You'll hear from him now, painting the picture of the rose ceremony, a lovely tradition of Waldorf schools that bookends the school year. Here's Vernon. The sun shines behind a row of seniors, sitting confidently on benches, facing a semicircle of students and teachers with eager, expectant faces. Eighth graders stand in the wings. Some shift from foot to foot. Others try to remain standing, straight and ready. First graders nuzzle or squirm on their parents' laps. A vase of roses lies center stage before the seniors. Every year we begin and end the year with the rose ceremony, an event that marks the transition from one stage of life to another. Foundational to Waldorf education is the understanding of human development and its phases. One principle of human development is the seven-year phase of life, from birth to seven, then seven to 14, and 14 to 21. In the rose ceremony, we see each of these phases represented as the kindergartner enters first grade, the eighth grader enters high school, and the senior enters adulthood though it should be noted they still got three more years till 21. Three ideals live within each seven year period, goodness, beauty, and truth. From when a child is born up through our early childhood program, the child is most nourished by a sense that the world is good. We cultivate the sense of goodness through the loving affection of the teachers, through stories, and through the very daily environment the children experience with their senses. The teacher carries on the parent's loving gaze and the constant devotion to the child's well-being, hugs each morning, snuggles on the rocking chair, a nice back rub when settling down for a nap. All let the child know that they are loved and in a good, safe place. Rudolf Steiner describes how during the first seven years, the young child nearly breathes in the whole character of the environment. Largely unconsciously, the young child directly experiences the physical world and the moral quality behind it. During these years, the child unconsciously seeks to develop their lower senses, touch, smell, balance, movement, and life. In a future episode, I'll touch on these more deeply. For now, it is sufficient to say that the child has an innate drive to explore with these senses because they develop a foundational understanding of the world around them. And through that experience of the world, they experience themselves. 
When we create an environment with a natural diversity of sense experiences, then this innate drive is satisfied and they experience the world as good. In this way, the kindergarten teacher is like the gardener. The gardener creates an environment that encourages the plant to grow by providing the right soil, the right amount of water, and the right amount of sunlight. The seed was always seeking to grow. This is innate, and the gardener simply helps the plant fulfill its destiny. When the child enters first grade, Steiner says, the next seven years are spent not so much breathing in the environment, but listening to what it has to say. In these years between first and eighth grade, the teacher is a mediator between the child and the world. This is why storytelling is so important in our curriculum. The spoken and written word help guide the students through an understanding of the world. And through the word and through the teachers, the students develop a feeling that the world is beautiful. The world may not always be good, and this is something that the teacher helps reveal as well. But in the world, beauty persists. The teacher's relationship with the world helps the student develop a healthy relationship with it. Without a relationship, the world is incoherent and causes anxiety. Through the teacher's artistic teaching, the student sees that the world is ordered, is coherent, and that they belong. Of course, the natural authority of the adult arose with time in order to make room for the authority of the students themselves. High school is when the student can no longer experience truth through the teacher, but only through their own conscious thinking activity. The students must use their physical senses to observe without judgment and to think clearly about these experiences in order to develop concepts free from external influence. What the teacher does provide is an environment and a means for investigating the riddles of the world as Steiner refers to them. The teacher helps awaken within them an extraordinarily great interest in the world outside of themselves. The student should have confidence that their teacher has access to the answer, that the teacher guides rather than imposes. Through these three phases, we help cultivate in our students the ability to not only sense goodness, beauty, and truth, but also to be bearers of them out in the world. When they stand on the stage and receive their high school diploma, they look out into the world with confidence and love. What a picture, Vernon. For the second part of this podcast, we'll dig a little deeper into some of the things you mentioned. Let's start with goodness, beauty, and truth. What does that look like in the classroom? Yeah, yeah, thanks, Jen. Um, you know, so here at the Denver Waldorf School and with Waldorf Education, um, we try to cultivate idealism in our young people. So they go out into the world and they bring gifts. And we hope that when they graduate, that they are bringing these three gifts of goodness, beauty, and truth out into the world. And so in those early childhood years, really they find goodness through the environment that they're actually around. And they find that there's a comforting, warm familiarity. And so if we think about where the child is coming from, um, you know, we really 
work with the idea that the child is coming from a divine place, that they're coming from, um, you know, the spiritual world, this kind of heavenly holding. And of course, as parents, we know from being with our newborns that they are these divine beings that we hold with just tremendous amounts of love and care. And, um, and so the early childhood teachers works with that same impulse of love and devotion to the child and tries to create an environment that is familiar to them. And so we're beings, human beings that are born of nature. And so we have a kinship with nature. And so everything in our early childhood classroom, we want to be as close to the natural world as possible. And so that's the reason why we have so much wood in our uh, classrooms. It's not just um, because it has some kind of aesthetic uh, appeal, um, but, but actually because it is more obviously related to the natural world than say plastic. Um, which goes through such an intense manufacturing process, the child cannot perceive its origins. Um, and so we want to have objects and materials in the room that make them feel like, yes, I belong to the world, that we have a common origin. And so we have um, wooden toys and furniture, and there are, you know, um, scarves that are made of silk that they play with, there's wool that they, all of the yarn that they're working with, whether it be the big fluffy unspun wool, um, or when I was in the classroom, I got to see Miss um, Christina working with the child on winding the yarn into a ball, you know, and um, all of that is wool and, or the pine cone and stones and crystals that are on our nature tables. And so part of that is just the very physical environment um, is one that elicits a feeling of the world is good because it's familiar, I understand it. And there are people around me that are loving and caring towards me and they're loving and caring towards the environment also. And so the child then learns to, through imitation, um, that same kind of love and care um, and that brings about a feeling of goodness arises in them. And how does that work in the grades, the lower grades, the upper grades, and then into the high school, where we're shifting potentially out of goodness into what you had mentioned as beauty and truth? Right. So moving into the grades, um, there's a transition from the world is good, and though, yes, goodness prevails still in many ways, but they also get uh, introduced to the idea that um, there also is um, bad or, you know, evil in the world, um, but through, especially through our storytelling program, that's really where they get to encounter the beauty of um, darkness and light meeting, and it's through darkness and light meeting that we get color. And so I like to think of the grades as really being a place of um, color, the beautiful color of um, finding ourselves through the human experience um, on this earth. And so we have this tremendous storytelling uh, curriculum where in the first 
uh, grade. And second is these fairy tales and folk tales uh, that speak to these greater archetypes um, and experiences that the child has in their own soul life. And then as they get older and older, these become the stories get more historical and rooted in uh, physical reality. So that by the eighth grade, they're learning about the 20th century and um, revolution and social change. And, and through this, through these stories, they get a feeling of belonging also, that they're part of the human story, um, which is quite a beautiful thing to be part of. As well, finally, is through the arts, uh, that they have a variety of artistic expression that they encounter and work with, painting, uh, sculpting with clay, woodworking, handwork, um, movement games and gym, music, uh, they sing and play recorder, um, and then later learn a string instrument and then a wind instrument if they so choose. And then through learning other languages, so they learn Spanish, and thus they have a, they have a love for the beauty of language, both of their, um, you know, English as well as of another language of Spanish. And then moving into high school, um, you know, the high schoolers, uh, they're really after what is real, what can I really understand, um, and uh, kind of a no-nonsense uh, kind of approach is how the high schooler really feels. Um, they can, they're very perceptive of uh, seeing when someone is not being genuine, and, and which is a quality you very much want to have. Uh, if you're going to develop independent critical thinking. And so that's what we really encourage in our high school is that they ask questions and that they um, dig deeply and don't take things for granted. And, um, and so that they really inquire now with both concrete as well as abstract thinking, what is real and what is true. That makes me think of how the high school might look and feel differently than the kindergarten class or the fourth grade class, um, specifically the teacher's role. How does that shift throughout these years? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the kindergarten teacher um, is going to have a very different way of interacting with uh, uh, their students than if they were interacting with a high schooler. Um, I remember when I first started here like 14 years ago, I was very green and um, I was asked to, uh, I had been working in even the first grade and I asked to sub a class in the eighth grade and um, I tried singing to the class to get them to quiet down. And um, I just about got laughed out of the room. Great. They were not, not having it. <laughs> so. I wish we had a recording of that. <laughs> yeah, right? No, well, thankfully that, that substitution session doesn't exist anymore. It's only in my um, but that gives you a picture of, right? We have this really warm, um, billowing, 
atmosphere, um, kind of loving embrace uh, of the kindergarten teacher. And, and I you know, like to think of kind of imagery, like I think of Our Lady of Guadalupe, um, you know, or you know, this kind of like Madonna figure that has this caring wraparound embrace of the child. And that's really the attitude of the early childhood teacher. Um, and, and that they're kind of this shepherd for them. Um, and then kind of moving on, um, there's this painting by Raphael, I believe, um, that has this image of this angel walking hand in hand with uh, kind of a, a child. And that's really the image I have for, you know, grades, you know, one through eight. And that handhold gets a little bit looser as they get older. So that eventually in high school, it's really you're standing to the side of them or even behind them, right? The student is really at that point leading the way, but they feel the support of the teacher behind them um, who can maybe perhaps like, uh, um, you know, Virgil and, uh, in Dante's Inferno, there's a, a light that you can hold up for them perhaps, you know, but um, that they're really the ones taking the steps. Well, how does that work with the seven year cycles? It's, it sounds like there's some pretty specific um, durations here. So what makes it a seven year cycle and not a four year cycle or you know, how, do, how, do you, how does that indicate that there's, um, there's a difference here where the education would sort of address those durations, cycles, phases? Yeah. Yeah, and of course, um, uh, nothing is an overnight, you know, you don't wake up on your seventh birthday and go, oh, right, you know, time for beauty. Um, so there's a, a transition phase, of course, with everything. But I think even if we just look biologically, we can see that there's some major shifts happening. So um, when the child is getting ready to go into first grade, um, there's a lot of excitement about talking about how many teeth they've lost. Uh, and, and, and really that's a picture of kind of different forces at work where they're kind of leaving behind uh, what they've inherited, um, you know, their kind of babyhood and kind of pushing in uh, something new and something more lasting, a little bit more independent. And, um, and so, you know, joining the first grade is a bit of a threshold moment. Um, the apron strings with the parents get a little looser. And, uh, and now they have all of these different teachers that they're going to encounter, not just their, you know, um, kindergarten teacher and nap assistant and lead assistant, but you know, a Spanish teacher, a movement teacher. Uh, and so it, it's, a, and they're sitting at a desk for the first time. So there's a lot of this um, that they're embracing something new that we can see in the change of teeth. And then uh, I think our, you know, culture recognizes more, more readily and easily um, the changes of puberty that really happen um, you know, uh, that, that has a, a wide range 
and has kind of changed more and more with um, even the advent of indoor lighting. But uh, especially we can see at 14, around the age of 14, there's really a tremendous biological change and emotional change that's happening in our students, you know, um, and the sort of reputation of adolescents and teenagers is there for a reason because there's a big change happening there. They're undergoing a lot internally and externally. Um, and when all of these physical changes are happening, um, what's, what's also being liberated is more abstract thinking. Uh, and so they're becoming more earthly grounded in their physical being. And so um, we, they're thus also being more able because their feet are more firmly on the ground their head is able to open up to more abstract thought, which is what we work more with in high school. What you're saying makes me think of questions that I've heard a, a few times from new parents or parents who are, um, you know, maybe their students or their children weren't in a Waldorf school from kindergarten to first, but they're going to enter this, the second grade or they're going to enter um, even at, in high school. Um, and sometimes I, I remember once a mother saying, well, how can I catch them up? Like, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't expose them to Waldorf education. Like, how can I undo, you know, almost as if she was, had made a fatal error, <laughs> which isn't really, which isn't really the vibe of, of the education or the school. But for, for those who are new to Waldorf or interested in Waldorf, what does it look like for those students who are entering an environment um, such as our schools? I think by and large, there's a feeling of, uh, of arriving at home. Mm -hmm. you know, that, that there's something about this education because we work with ideas that are really centered around what is it to be human? Um, how does the human being change over time? And what are the appropriate activities that most meet them at that age? And so they come here and they go, and they realize, um, perhaps not consciously, but viscerally, uh, oh, there is something here that really feels aligned with my very being. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so there's, um, on the outside, there's you know, some adjustment, of course, to something new. Uh, oh, everyone's saying something right now in the morning and they know all the words and I don't. You know, um, We start every day with a morning verse, um, but those little things go away very easily easily and instead they find oh i'm very glad that i get to say these things also with my peers uh, you know and so um that's what i have found you know i had students that joined in sixth grade or seventh grade in my last classes and it very much felt like a duck in water well maybe you can also tell a little bit about your story as well as you you gave us a little bit of information you've been here for 14 years um, but the cycles that you have taught and then how you've sort of transitioned now to be our education director, um, maybe you can go in a little bit into your story and then also what does that mean as the education director for, for our school, but also for 
just in general for Waldorf education, what you're trying to accomplish with us? Sure. Um, yeah, I, well, I first got acquainted with Waldorf education in Olympia, Washington. I was studying education there and, um, and started working in the aftercare program there and uh, worked there for a few years and then came back to Denver. This is more or less where I'm from and, um, and connected with the Denver Waldorf School, started teacher training and got hired as the first grade assistant. And so I worked as an assistant for two years uh, in the classrooms for first grade, second and third um, for two years while completing my teacher training. And then upon completing my training, I took, the, uh, I took a class of my own as a lead teacher and took them for grades one through eight. And so they are seniors now, which is pretty exciting. Wow. And, um, and then uh, I just finished taking a class grades six through eight. Um, and so now they're freshmen in the high school. Uh, here at the school, and so, um, and and through that, I found that I really, really enjoy talking about Waldorf education. I really enjoy talking with teachers about teaching, uh, and working, talking with parents, and that's very much much of what this job is as education director: is working with the teachers, going into the classrooms. Um, asking, how can I support you? How can we make our teaching even better? How do we meet all of these students? Um, how can I help the parents get a window into what it is that we're doing here? And, mm -hmm. and, and how to develop um, you know, other ideas and within the principles of our curriculum, um, meeting the times we're in. Great. Well, not you know, it can transition into really explaining what we're trying to do here with our podcast, um, this format in particular, where you're sharing, you're going into the classrooms and you're sharing for the families and maybe also for those who aren't familiar with Waldorf education, really what it is that a Waldorf school does and in particular how, um, how our school is and who our school is. And so, it will be exciting over the coming weeks, over the over the school year, to dig into some of the topics, um, you know, chapter by chapter, really, as as folks get to know our school, um, and as we're aiming toward, you know, spreading the benefits of, of Waldorf education to those around us. So, thanks, Vernon. Um, what are we thinking for next week? Do you have any thoughts on, on where you might want to go? Take it, you don't, not to put you on the spot, but just putting you on the spot. <laughs> well, the list of topics that we could go into is long. Yeah, and so the, again, this intention of this first one was to work with this idea um, of hold aparts. Uh, you know, we start with the big picture and then we look at the details. And so um, throughout the year with these podcasts, we hope to look at all of the different parts that also make up the whole of Waldorf education. Uh, I can't say for certain exactly what mm. um, we could look, you know, I have a lot of ideas. Rhythm is a really important theme in our education. Uh, you know, uh, next week we have our back to school night and looking at the theme of, you know, really Waldorf education 
came into this world with a social mission of healing um, and imagination. And um, so those are a couple of the things that have been rattling around up here. Um, Please. Great. Well, thank you. And thank you to those who listen to the podcast and we will catch you next time. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, everyone.